Welcome to Obsidian Stories. I'm Angela Ford, founder of the Obsidian Collection Archives. This Obsidian Story is about four celebrated Black photographers and their 1973 exhibit, Through Eyes of Blackness, held at the Southside Community Arts Center in Chicago. O.V. Carter, Bob Black, Howard Simmons, and John White are four of the first Black photographers to work at Chicago's mainstream newspapers. It was such a wonderful thing for the four of us to get together. And what I really appreciate, not just then, but now, we have stuck together. There's no ego problem. These are really cool guys. 50 years later, they are getting back together for artist talks and a retrospective of their exhibit that will be located in a few spaces around Chicago. But this conversation is with one of the photographers, Howard Simmons, as he talks about all of it, then and now, 50 years later, still through eyes of blackness. Hello, everyone. This is Joy Weathers, and I am so excited to come with another amazing episode on behalf of the Obsidian Collection. Today, we are jumping right to it. I cannot believe the honor and opportunity that we have to learn from the great Howard Simmons. This gentleman has not only captured the beauty and the brilliance of Black Chicago, but along with his three friends, have served for over 60 years to capture the beauty of Chicago in general through their photojournalism as well as commercial photography. So we are super excited and honored to have this conversation with you, sir. I've seen your work as well as that of your three friends, and it's something that as a creative myself, it has always been super inspirational. So let's jump right into our conversation. In looking at how you began your career, I would love for you to tell us, like, how did you and your three friends come together to host an exhibit in 1973 at the Southside Community Arts Center? Well, we both worked in photojournalism at the papers, and I worked at Ebony Magazine. I came here from Pittsburgh to go to the Ebony Magazine and see if I can get a job out of nowhere. And it was kind of a fairy tale affair because in Pittsburgh, I worked in a photo lab at a commercial photographer's uh, studio. And then I went from there to a commercial photographer's uh, studio and I worked in the lab there. I wanted to become a commercial photographer initially. And in the lab, uh, I was able to print anything I wanted to in color and as large as I was able to, and hoping to become a photographer there at the advertising agency. Uh, since that never came to fruition, I decided I was going to go to Chicago and see if I could get a job at Ebony Magazine. So I made prints up to 11, 16 by 20, actually, not 11 by 14, and hopped on a plane, flew to Chicago, no resume, no call, 
walked in the door at Ebony Magazine, and I was able to get a job. Inexperienced, and I was able to see John Johnson, and he hired me. That is a fairy tale story right there. So working for Ebony, I flew all over the country. And in nine months, I had 40 out-of-town assignments. And I thought I would ask Mr. Johnson for a raise since I was getting married in a few months. And his response was flat, no. And that was a little painful for me. And while I was at Ebony, I was on the south side of Chicago in a grocery store. And don't ask me why I was there, but I was in a grocery store. And I encountered a black photographer in line. And this guy had a Leica camera hanging on his shoulder. And I wouldn't encounter too many black photographers with a Leica. That's an expensive camera. So I assumed that this guy had to be an advanced photographer. So I introduced myself. That was Bob Black. So that had a very important and significant influence on my future. Because while we spoke and I told him where I worked, he told me where he worked. So he was the first black photographer with the Sun-Times. So he said, you should, you should come down to the Sun-Times. And I said, well, I work for Ebony. And I thought of Ebony, if you'll pardon my frankness, I thought of Ebony as a little higher than working for a newspaper. So when John Johnson refused my raise request, I called Bob and uh, told him that I'd like to come down and talk to someone at the Sun-Times. So I went down and I got an adequate salary there. And that's how I uh, started work at the Sun-Times. And that is how I met Ovi and John White. And that's how our friendship began. I love that. And first and foremost, it really speaks to um, your inner conviction in terms of your skill and also just the fact to change your stars, just even move from Pittsburgh to Chicago without um, any references and to really go for the go for your dream. And then from there, the power of networking um, and how you all were able to form what clearly has been lasting bonds. So a little birdie told me that you helped get a new lighting installed in the center for your exhibit. How did that come to be and why was that so important? Well, they had no lighting there for a, a place that's going to exhibit art. There was no lighting. The ceiling needed some attention too. So uh, for our exhibit, uh, we had uh, help from uh, Parker House Sausage Company. Um, They were very helpful, and uh, Daryl Grisham was the president, and he was very instrumental in helping our exhibit get off the ground. And so he wanted to see uh, Southside Community Arts Center because we told him it needed lighting. And um, he came by and he said, well, you need lighting there. Okay. Uh, I think I can help take care of that. And he looked at the ceiling too. He said, oh, the ceiling needs some attention. 
So he said, well, we'll put in a new ceiling. So interestingly, the managing editor of Ebony Magazine, the one who once seen my work allowed me to see Mr. Johnson, uh, he was the uh, part-time, I guess, director. Every so often they would change directors of people of note in, in Chicago. So at that time, Herb Nipson was there. And I tell this story, and since Herb Nipson is no longer with us, I can uh, relate what happened. When Daryl Grisham saw that the ceiling needed repair and it needed lighting, he said, well, let's, let's look around. So we went upstairs, and upstairs was in bad shape, and we looked around all around. And so Daryl Grisham said, uh, why not work on the whole place? And wow, that was really amazing. And so when he explained this to Herb Nipson, Mr. Nipson said, why not give us the money and we'll do it? Mr. Grisham was so upset we turned, he turned around and the two of us left. And as we left, he said, I'll do the ceiling for you guys. I'll do the lighting and that's it. So all these years, things have been left the way they were 50 years ago. And all of that could have been taken care of. And that was rather heartbreaking. First and foremost, thank you for sharing, um, Mr. Simmons. And even though, yes, it's, it's a disappointing aspect, sometimes everyone can't get on the same page, but looking at the significance of the Southside Community Arts Center, what you as well as your friends have been able to do to keep its legacy alive, I think it's amazing that even going forward, those necessary uh, changes are happening to keep the building in good repair. Um, so moving into when you and your friends created the exhibit, you chose not to identify each image by photographer. What caused you to make that decision? Like, how did you all come to that consensus? We felt that the exhibit represented a statement unto itself on the whole as opposed to as an individual statement from each of us. Maybe you could liken it unto a quartet singing and all of that music coming together in harmony. And it felt so much better as a unified statement because we all worked on our images together, printing our images, selecting our images, and putting them all together made that statement without someone looking to see, well, is that Ovi's image or, or well, that's Bob's image, that's John's, Howard. It all made that statement without having to consider who shot what. The quality of the images were all of the same status. And we felt that that was the importance of it. It wasn't a matter of saying uh, anything about the importance of one image by giving the name to this one, name to that one. 
And I just think it was unique and it really made the statement through eyes of blackness. And I'm so happy we did that. And I think it was rather unique because no one's name was on any of the photographs. And I don't think you can find too many exhibits like that of any sort. When I think of what it would require to have a creative or an artist who obviously takes extreme pride in their artistry to set that aside for the collective and as you put it, for that ultimate statement of everyone, I'm hard pressed to even find who would necessarily do that, especially when looking at all of you all. By the time you all are joining forces, you're starting to build your own reputations. Um, You all are, you're the first at the Sun-Times. You're working as a photojournalist or as a photographer for Ebony Magazine. These are super reputable entities in which I'm pretty sure it came with its own um, high profile association. And so the statement that you all made is clearly one that has reverberated and has been appreciated all these decades later. It was such a wonderful thing for the four of us to get together. And what I really appreciate, not just then, but now, we have stuck together. There's no ego problems. These are really cool guys. Um, if you meet the four of us, everybody's just laid back and just really great guys. And I am blessed to be associated with these guys. And I, I tell people that these are guys who keep me humble. I cannot get an attitude about my photography because I am... This is, I'm being honest and frank. When I say they keep me humble, they keep me humble. When anyone says anything about my photography, I say, you've got to check out my buddies. And you'll really get to appreciate some really wonderful photographers. And I am, again, just truly blessed to have these guys as friends. And that was the thing I think that made through Eyes of Blackness, the wonderful exhibit that it was. It was, uh, we put a lot of work into that exhibit. And all that we did together, as I, as I said, when we would go to different places, schools, and talk about our work, it was um, really a, a true pleasure that we could share our expertise and our experiences at uh, different places. And now, when you think about all these years and the things that we have gone through, experienced, it's really uh, a wonderful thing. And, And sometimes I can maybe take for granted all that we've done and I have to stop and just really think about it and think about who these guys are that I'm just fortunate to be associated with. And that might sound a little extreme, but these guys are really a part of history and photography. You all definitely are. And even the way you speak about them, 
this wasn't just, you know, four amazing photographers coming together. What you all have formed, um, it is so very apparent you all have formed a brotherhood um, and that this is beyond just, you know, a casual or superficial friendship that you all have maintained that bond, which is so encouraging and beautiful to see. So as we speak, even before I pivot to another aspect that I really wanted to get your opinion on, but when it comes to the actual exhibit itself, how did you feel in terms of the turnout? Like how many people showed up and not even in terms of just numbers, but just to see the amount of people was there. What was that experience like for you all? There's an interesting story to that. We stayed up all night hanging the exhibit. And it was a, a real chore. And there's a funny uh, sideline to that because working that night, because there were a number, I don't know what the number is of the number of photographs we had there. We had a photographs uh, from probably the smallest uh, print size was maybe 16 by 20. I don't know if we had anything in the size of 11 by 14. I don't think we did. And the largest print uh, size we had was 40 by 60. And we spent the whole night and we uh, print uh, hanging the prints and they were all wrapped in, in uh, paper and so they came from Gamma Photo Lab. Uh, we printed prints uh, ourselves up to 20 by 30 in my basement. And we stay in, stayed up many nights making those prints. And our prints equaled in quality the prints made by the Professional Photo Lab because the big prints up to 40 by 60, they had to be done by Gamma Photo Lab. And our prints mirrored the prints that were done by Gamma. So we had, and they were mounted on quarter inch uh, masonite. So we spent the whole night hanging the prints. And at one point, one of our guys disappeared. Where's John White? Where's John? We could not find John. John had gotten under all the paper that we took off the prints and he went to sleep under the paper. So. It was gone. It was so funny. <laughs> so we finally got ourselves together and it was early in the morning. It might've been 5 a.m. maybe. And so we had to rush home, change our clothes and come back. And we didn't really know who would be there or how many folks were there. And when we got there, people were lined up down the block. It was such a wonderful feeling. We were so happy. And so that gives you an idea the place was packed. Wow. Um, and that also speaks to just the fact of the community's desire to see themselves in a beautiful light. Um, so many times uh, the portrayal of African-Americans hasn't been uh, positive. So the fact that you all leverage your cameras in such a way, as you said, to show the beauty, to highlight the vastness of, of the community, and the fact that the community responded in such an enthusiastic manner is just amazing. So you said earlier, when we were kind of talking offline, just in terms of how you have done photojournalism, but also more so um, you're now in on the commercial photography side. So why did you personally decide to go 
into commercial photography? What was exciting about it? Or what was interesting about it? That was my first love. When I was in the Air Force, I would set up shots and take pictures of objects and whatever I could in in my barracks. I was in the band and um, I fell in love with, with photography while I was in the service. And commercial photography was my love. As a matter of fact, when I went to Chicago um, and I heard that there was a black advertising agency, I made sure I went there to find out about Vince Colors Advertising, I introduced myself, and I just wanted to know about a Black advertising agency. That was just amazing to me. So interestingly, when I left the Sun-Times, I took a leave of absence to try to start my own business in commercial photography. I went to Vince Colors to let him know that I had left the Sun-Times, and he gave me an opportunity with his top clients, Kellogg's, Illinois Bell at that time, that was the phone company, Illinois Bell, and Standard Oil, which is BPO now. He gave me an opportunity to shoot for his top clients. And I've always been thankful to Vince Colors because I started off not really knowing much about commercial photography. And so from there, or as uh, with Vince Colors, I was able to get work with an, a Jewish advertising agency, interestingly enough. And that's, that's how it started. Uh, I love commercial photography, still do. It's a real challenge uh, shooting commercial photography because it could end up doing anything. And sometimes you can spend all day setting up for one shot. So I was able to finally get into Burrell advertising. That was pretty difficult. And I think it's interesting that I was able to get into a Jewish advertising agency before I could get into Burrell. That's interesting. I, they, I did all their work. Uh, a black photographer doing all the work of a Jewish advertising agency. And they introduced me to an art director for Platt Luggage. So I did all the catalogs for Platt Luggage. Uh, so I did a lot of work uh, for white agency, a white company. And uh, commercial photography is such a different world from journalism. In my analogy, which I use so much, I can compare a commercial photography with a sniper. Because a sniper sets up everything just right, takes the time to use that the rifle and the scope to precisely make take aim at that target. You might even have a sandbag and just everything just right before taking that shot. That's a commercial shoot. You might spend all day. Angela can tell you. You might spend all day, you get your clothing stylist, you get your makeup artist, you get to set together, you get the lighting together, you decide what film you're gonna use at that particular time. 
art director says, let's do it this way. You get the lighting the way it's supposed to be. You have a layout of how you're supposed to shoot it. So that's the sniper style. Photojournalism, you're the gunslinger. You've got to be ready to pull that gun and shoot. You don't have time to say, hey, there's a fire going on or there's a shootout going on. The police are arresting someone. You've got to be ready to shoot. You've got to know. You don't have time to say, well, I need this exposure, this aperture. You've got to be ready to shoot. And I learned to have the greatest respect for newspaper photographers, photojournalists. It's just another world. And that's helped me when I got, that helped me when I got into commercial photography. Because sometimes I had to make a shoot look like it was shot by a photojournalist. I did a lot of work for Channel 5, and there were a number of shoots that I had for Channel 5 that I had to make look as if it was shot by a photojournalist. I photographed a lot of uh, interesting people. Michael Jordan, um, I shot him when he had hair. Uh, I've uh, Walter Payton, great guy, photographed him. Uh, matter of fact, this was long after I left the paper. They used the full page on the Sun Times of that I the picture I shot. Uh, his son gave a uh, photograph to the paper, and um, a number of uh, interesting people uh, that I had a chance to like. Uh, Natalie Cole, not Nat, oh, yeah, I did photograph Natalie Cole, too, and, and the, uh, Chuck Jackson and Marvin Yancey, who wrote uh, her hits. And it was interesting to be able to sit down with some people and actually have conversations. Um, Nat, uh, Natalie's writers, Natalie Cole's writers, uh, had my first studio. They were downstairs. I didn't know where they were, and I went and introduced myself. So that was a very interesting situation. Um, number of musicians and just interesting people. I was at uh, Martin Luther King's home, home, not while he was alive, but I had a chance to meet the family and photograph the family. So it's commercial photography has been most interesting. I, at one point, years after I left Ebony, I got a call from Mrs. Johnson asking me if uh, they, she made a mistake and didn't didn't uh, get a photographer in Paris to shoot fashion fair, uh, some of their fashions for the fashion fair uh, event. They had only used white photographers over the years in Paris. And Mr. Johnson told Mrs. Johnson, why not try Howard? See if he can go. So. Uh, she called me and I went to Paris and did a shoot of, of uh, some of the really exclusive fashions. As a matter of fact, the person, they bring clothes over and they wait for you to shoot. And you can't spend much time shooting. So commercial is very interesting and it, it was fun. And I enjoy commercial photography. There are many challenges. And it took me a little while to get into Burrell. And I have to thank Lowell Thompson, uh, Lowell Thomas, for getting me in there. Great, interesting guy, great art director. He became the head art director. And um, he's told an art director at one point, use Howard Simmons on this job. 
And that's how I got into Burrell. No, I love that. Again, the power of connection. And also at that point, your work was so amazing. It truly was speaking for itself. Um, but I think that's also what you're highlighting is just the beauty of when you're in a creative space, when you're moving with authenticity, the vast amount of people that you will be able to to meet, whether they're still here, or if they've passed on, like it really does resonate and stick with you in just terms of the beauty of interaction that you get to have with so many different people. I've had many, many interesting, wonderful experiences trying to get into the white agencies was kind of difficult. And I've had interesting experiences there too. And we won't get into that. So let's get back to my guys. Let's get back to John White, Ovi Carter, and Bob Black. Two, these guys, three wonderful individuals, not only as photographers, but as people. These are wonderful, they're gentlemen, they're wonderful artists, and they're fun guys, and they are humble. You can't ask for more than that. You can't, and and I would love to know, even with that, two of you all out of your friend group have won Pulitzer Prizes for your work. How did you all celebrate that moment? I can only imagine the sense of pride and just happiness that you all had as a collective, but I would love to know, like, what, what did that mean to you all? We didn't, we weren't together at that point. As far as this was years later, we were just young guys. When we did that exhibit, you, you see the picture of us on the stairs. We were just young guys. So they won their Pulitzers after that. And as far as celebrating all that, we we really didn't. Wow, okay. It was, again, even now, when we had our discussion the other day for the video that was shot, I learned things about these guys I didn't know. Hmm. Yes, we do more conversation about life, our friendship, and things in general, more so than about photography. I think we talked more about photography the other day than normally when we get together. That's actually really interesting. Like, it really does also though speak to the fact of what you all gain from the relationships. It's not you know, based on the industry, who's who, and I've done this, or look at my portfolio or my book, you all really built a bond that was just based off of caring for one another, which is really amazing to see, especially amongst Black men. Yes. No no attitude about one thing or another. And again, just humble, really great guys. And, and, and sometimes I forget that. We... The first time we got together and had dinner together was about three, three or four years ago. It was before the pandemic. And it was, we had so much fun. It was wonderful. It, was fan, it really was a wonderful experience. And that's just the way we are. This has just been amazing to even discuss with you, even on a surface level, just all of your experience and the wealth of knowledge that you have. But in terms of how you have seen the evolution of photojournalism and photography, or more so specifically commercial photography, 
clearly has changed. You know, the platforms that are leveraged, now there's AI. There's just so many different factors that are in place. What would be your message for young creatives today, for young photographers specifically, who are looking to make their mark, or just looking to to get started and to find and navigate their own voice? I believe that AI is going to make a tremendous difference more so in commercial photography than photojournalism. Uh, AI is not going to go out and shoot what's happening in the world. And it's, it's not going to go out there on the uh, in, in a war zone and shoot. It's not going to go out and shoot a woman whose son just lost her son out there on the street and catch those moments of grief, those moments of happiness, things that are historic. You're not going to have AI do that. Um, It's just not happening. But as far as commercial photography goes, I predict that they won't even have to go out. They'll be in the conference room with the art director directing, deciding what they want, where they want in the world, and they'll be able to find whatever they want and bring it up probably on a screen or wherever and uh, produce an ad and not even uh, have people. Do you know there's an AI modeling agency now? Unbelievable. So you'll be able to go anywhere in the world and shoot what you want with models of any type that you want and set it up. I was amazed by this poem uh, that was done by AI. This uh, guy that I saw on YouTube asked the bot to do a poem with two tigers that went on a hunt for an antelope. And it came back within 20, 30 seconds. It was a gorgeous poem. And it was about, they fell in love while they were hunting. And it wasn't a short poem. It was done with passion and warmth wow and there are so many things that are that ai has a chance to do so where we're going in the future is just incomprehensible it's just unreal so photography will still exist in certain situations i think wedding photographers i don't know about portraiture i haven't thought about that that much wedding photography i think will will exist but Now, look what you can do with your cell phone. So in a lot of weddings, I think they will have a family just shoot and shoot and shoot and then meld it all together and make what they want from that, which will compare to what a professional photographer can do. So journalism, I think, is strong. That will stay there. Uh, One photographer online said that he's to the point now as what, from what he can see, he's going to end up shooting for the fun of it. He's a nature photographer, and he says what, what AI can do is such that he's just going to end up shooting for the fun of it. And that's kind of sad. It's going to change a lot of jobs. That's going to just change. It's going to eliminate a lot of jobs. So then would your understanding, as you just said, like, the impact that AI or, or just in general where the industry currently is, what then do you think would be the encouragement, the advice? What would be then um, something to share with 
an aspiring photographer or an aspiring creative with this new landscape? To me, there's nothing like capturing that moment. There, there's a shot that I have. I saw a, what I'll call a canvas. And that was a scene that I saw. And the scene was incomplete. It needed something. I waited for about 20 minutes. And this guy came by, had on backwards on a bicycle. And that was the shot. I waited, it needed that element. And the guy came by. Another shot, I was on the L platform and looking down. And everything was, it was just a nice situation. Again, it needed that element. So I call it the canvas and I needed that element. And a lady came back, come by, came by with a red scarf on, with a tan trench coat. She's walking by. That's a white lady. And that added to the element because she was an older white lady. You might call the kabushka that she had on because of the way she looked. It, you should call the kabushka. She walked by and that was it. They call them honor boxes, you know, the boxes where they have the newspapers in. It had a whole string of those boxes, different colors. And, and there were a couple boxes that were red that worked with her scarf or her kabushka. And that was the shot. Click. AI can't do that. AI can't look at the scene and say, oh, I need another element here. And what should it be? And wait there. It's just, I think that's a certain human quality that I think AI, I just don't see that, but who knows? But it's still very personal to me. It still means something that's really wonderful. And that's still kind of photojournalism. That's telling a story. And there, there's a lot of things that it's just, I don't think it's going to take over totally because there are shots that I have in my family. I have a whole ton of pictures of my family. I have so many, I have pictures that have never been printed and the majority of them are in black and white. And it's not, they're not photographs that are snapshots of family. I, they're not just shots of the kids looking at the camera and just, Shots like that, they're journalistic type photographs. And I have, I don't know, I have thousands of photographs. I even have my youngest daughter being born. The key, that through line that I'm hearing is just the fact of also like it's the connection. And that's something that if you have the calling to pick up a lens to, you know, go on that creative journey, that's something that AI won't be able to replicate um, in the least. And to that point, I know we're wrapping up right now, but I just want to say on behalf of the Obsidian Collection, again, what an immense honor it has been to speak with you, um, to just hear a little bit of your knowledge, of your experiences, of your artistry. Um, so thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak with us. You're certainly welcome. And when I have a situation like this being it's an honor for me to, to speak to you. It helps me to think again, even 
uh, more so about uh, the guys. I just call them the guys. It uh, helps me more so to appreciate what they do and how they've been an important part of my existence. So it serves a good, it serves a, a really important um, element, a good part of, of uh, my existence. I've been very fortunate in so many, many ways in life. I've had really good experiences in the service, and all of us have, have served uh, in, in the military one way or the other. That's interesting, too. Yeah, all of us. You know, Bob was in the uh, reserves, and John was in the Marines. I was in the Air Force. I'm trying to think what Obi, where Obi was. I'm not, not, not that sure. But uh, being in the band was a good, uh, interesting part of my life. So music was an important part of my existence. Life is a wonderful journey. And that is how we're going to end it. Yes, indeed. So thank you all for yet again another amazing episode with the Obsidian Collection. I'm your host, Joy Weathers, and we'll see you next time. The journey of Howard Simmons and his colleagues and friends is so important to the culture. We are connecting our elders with the younger generations through not just their words, but their images. We are fortunate to produce their retrospective, revisiting their exhibit from 50 years ago. Remember, it's 50 years later, still through eyes of blackness. And these are Obsidian Stories.